Hey, you're still here at George Mason University. I'm here with Dr. Matthew Hodler from the University of Rhode Island. Uh, today, we are covering an article outside of necessarily like the normal health and physical education context that we usually talk about. Uh, but the article title is Converging Interests, Unequal Benefits, Tribal Critical Race Theory in the Miami University's Miamia Heritage logo. Uh, this was published in the Sociology Sport Journal uh, with uh, Callie Batsmatics. Uh, you can find the full site of the article in the notes. Uh, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really look forward to this conversation. Yeah, and and I love the paper because it's it's way out of what I typically would read, but it's also something that I've been kind of looking into a little bit more. Uh, I've I don't know if you've listened to these podcasts, um, uh, This Land podcast uh, that talks about Native Americans and these uh, kind of couple Supreme oh, Court no. law- lawsuits that have recently come up. It's really interesting. We cover Native American uh, in sports and physical education in a, um, oh, wow. I in a check that out. class that I teach. So this is really interesting. So I'm... I'm interested to find out what's your background to the study. Like, what's the history behind this that kind of led you to writing a paper about this? Um, well, th- yeah, um, we've been talking about the the, the tomahawk chop um, in my classes this week too. So I've been thinking extra about this work. Hmm. Um, it's it's a long history. Um, we grew up. I grew up all over the country, and I we lived in Oklahoma for a little bit. And when I was there, was kind of at that formative age of like eight till ten, you know, when you start to remember things. And, and uh, I took a few Native American history classes, um, and we would do a celebration of the land run every uh, spring, which is when white settlers came to Oklahoma uh, and basically took over Indian territory. Uh, is the short reason for that. And so the politics of Native Americans and Native American history has been something that's been pretty interesting to me throughout uh, my life. Uh, when I chose to go to school, I went to undergrad at Miami, Ohio, which is the subject institution of this um, piece. Mm-hmm. And it was shortly after they'd switched the mascot name from that from the um, slur to Red Hawks. Okay. And I, when we got there, it was a big, it was a big issue on campus. Uh, Sherman Alexie came and spoke. Uh, the Summer Reed was the Lone Ranger and Tonto fistfight in heaven. We watched Smoke Signals, which was a, was a movie based on Sherman Alexie's work. And there was like, I don't know if it's like this at George Mason or other schools that you've worked at or been to, but Miami, at least back then, would try to do like a series of other talks throughout the semester that, uh, that related to the um, summer reading issue. So there was... Okay. Uh, Native American scholars who come in and talk about the history. And to be honest, when I came to Miami, one of the things I really liked the mascot name, and I thought that it was like this honorable thing. Mm-hmm. And then you hear uh, indigenous people's perspectives, you read about the histories, you watch documentaries, and you start to learn about the genocide. Uh, I began to be very happy with us switching the name uh, to me. And this was kind of personified or at the end of my freshman year, I swam in Miami for one year before I injured myself. And there was a fight when we won conference championships. They won um, the older guys who had come in and recruited as the old name, wanted to write that uh, mascot or the slur on our rings. And the younger guys were net, we were always Red Hawks. Hmm. And so there was an argument about what would go on our rings. Uh, and there was a compromise uh, where they would put the block M with the Indian with the chief head logo mm-hmm. on top, uh, and so like like that that tension sort of always was interesting to me and always something that I kept my eyes open. I didn't really know how to think about it. So you know you you go away, you graduate, you um, uh, I lived life, and then I went back to grad school, and my first job after my PhD was back at Miami uh, as a visiting assistant professor, and by then that would have been about 15 or 20 years after the name had been changed. But I began to see remnants of the old name around campus. And Callie, uh, Dr. Maddox, um, was also uh, started at Miami as a tenure track professor when I was there. And she had the same kind of thing. And we taught similar classes. And so we would talk through, like, what are we going to, what do we do in the classroom? And kind of a really collaborative work. And we started just thinking about how to bring in, and I don't, I'm sure you do the same thing, but how do we, how do we make our students interested in these things? Right. And generally, if you talk about your local school, 
students are interested. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we started asking students about it. um, And we then, as I think we say in the article, we then saw the Miami Heritage logo sort of emerge. I first noticed it on some of my students who are athletes um, shirts uh, or administration would send out emails with that, um, the logo um, as their signature. Mm-hmm. Callie saw it on uh, when she would go to the uh, swim pool with her uh, little daughter. They would have, they would, you'd see stuff around campus um, signage and those things as well. Um, so we just started noticing it and noticed that change and those two logos side by side. And we wanted to figure out a way to talk about it and yeah. think about it in a complex way. And it's, it's interesting because I, like we talked offline earlier that this is something that was really personal for you because you were an undergraduate there and then you came back and you've kind of opened your mind into understanding a lot of this. Uh, so it's, it's something that you're living because you're actually on that campus and you're seeing this, this occurring. But yeah, in the, yeah, in, exactly. And I, I'm sure you had the same thing with like my old friends from college will still talk about these things. Um, and you know, you, you really the same arguments over and over again, sometimes with the same people you've been friends with for 20 years. Yeah. Uh, but it was that, it, yeah, exactly how you said sort of re inhabiting that space 20 years later kind of gives you a different gives you a different language for the different perspective that you've that you've developed over this time. Yeah. And so you mentioned that the discussion about reinvocation of Native American imagery in sport hasn't really been studied. Can you explain what that term means and kind of give us an overview? Yeah, definitely. Um we 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 use the term reinvocation because we it it was sort of an organic um, the, the Miami Heritage logo, which I think you can see the pictures of in the piece. Yeah, I think we have that. Yeah, and on page on page two thirty five, sort of came about, and it was not the lo- it was not the official logo at the time of the M of the M with the wings on it. Uh, that is the Miami official logo, and but it was everywhere. And invocation to us had this sort of cultural aspect to it, so it wasn't just structural. Whereas like slapped on things, it also kind of called back or harkened back the old imagery usage. Mm-hmm. And so we settled on the word reinvocation because we thought that kind of made us like overcomplicate or made it. Let me see the best way to say this. It called out the need to think about it as more than just a sticker on the side of a helmet. Right. Like that invocation, the reinvocation sort of spoke to the broader atmosphere. Uh, and we then we kind of did, we poked around and looked at other schools that had gotten rid of the mascots. Um, so like Stanford, Dartmouth, um, what other ones? What was, what um, was Stanford's logo? I, because well, they were in our conference, were, I, I always remember this, the Stanford Cardinal and it was just like a tree and I was always they, curious. It was, of, in the, it was in the seventies. They mm-hmm. had a native American mascot and I think and the and it was like a mascot it wasn't actually the imagery uh-huh. and then they switched over to the tree officially and the cardinal as a sort of just discussion of the color red oh, because okay. from the way that i always understood it in red it was that that red was you know like sort of how like saint john's used to be the red men yeah yeah and syracuse used to be the orange men yeah like those were references towards native americans and that's when and Stanford is always written about as being one of the first schools to switch. And I want to say it was in the early seventies. Hmm. Something look um, up for me later. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Or maybe it's something we should have put the article. Um, and, uh, and so we were looking at those kinds of schools that had switched those. And, you know, like, um, my our university of Oklahoma, the, the Sooners, which is one of the nicknames of the people that broke the line to jump ahead early on the mm-hmm. land run mm-hmm. uh had a, a, a native american mascot called little red uh, and they got rid of him uh and and there was no and we haven't seen imagery used again uh in those schools and we found it curious especially when we looked at kind of the way that the new imagery was talked about it was very similar to jennifer guliano's book indian spectacle looks at the 1920s, 1930s, uh, college football becoming a spectacle. And she looks at Native American mascots. 
And a lot of the press releases that talked about Native Americans back then, like Chief Lionawick was the, she looked a lot of the Midwest and Chief Lionawick at Fanging a Lion Eye. Mm-hmm. They taught, they use similar sort of coming together uh, around a campfire. Uh, we're using this Native American mascot tree to, to represent a community, broader ideals was very similar. And I think we've used, we talk about this, it kind of rhymes with the 1930s and 20s rhetoric right. uh, and language used in the 2010s, 2016, 2018, when we saw this being reemerged. And so that was another reason why we used reinvoked. Um, and Miami was the only one that we could see doing that. But it also is important that Miami has a very unique relationship with the tribe that other schools don't seem to have. Right. Um, maybe Florida State and Seminole Tribe of Florida, which is one of the three um, uh, federally recognized tribes, uh, Seminole Tribes, might have a similar relationship. But Miami had done some really fascinating work with um, some scholars uh, to basically refurbish and refine. Uh, and reanimate the language. So, so like the Miamia language was dying, mm-hmm. according to most folks that I've read. Um, but they did some really good work and, and found it's really smart scholars, Baldwin being one of the, uh, Doug, I think it's Doug Baldwin, but uh, mm-hmm. and uh, Baldwin is one of the first ones they did uh, and kind of helped to reanimate these interests in the culture in a really progressive and sort of positive way for a lot of folks that are scholars and Native Americans. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, and I, and I think you, ha- you have some images there uh, in the paper as well, where they talk about this heritage logo and, and we'll get to that. But yeah, one of the one of the ways that you used, I mean, you used a theory to analyze, analyze your work and analyze what was happening here. And it's called tribal critical race theory. And obviously, like, somebody listening to this, they're going to catch on to that critical race theory if they've yeah. listened to any po- political podcast or watched the news. It's it's a very hot topic. And I'm sure that when you were writing this paper, because it was published in 2020, it didn't have the same pop politically. But so I'm wondering, like, I know some readers or some listeners might understand what critical race theory is. Some people don't know but what is what is tribal critical race theory because i haven't heard that before definitely well you're 100 right it was crt or critical race theory was not as big of a uh, sort of political flashpoint at the time we were writing this um and it as you know like basically it's a framework that places race and racism at the center of analysis Mm -hmm. so it's trying to look at how race and racism are reproduced through structures it originally came out of um, legal theory and so it looked a lot like laws that were nominally colorblind quote unquote Mm -hmm. or didn't think about race but then how do they reproduce racism was way like Derek bell and others sort of invented it or created it uh tribal critical race theory is an offshoot of that and i didn't know about it either uh callie and i had been collecting all of this information and we knew we wanted to write about this project and we initially wrote I um, got invited to present in a really informal way at this workshop, um, a public history workshop that looked at uh, universities, university sports and um, campus sites. And we wrote and presented on the the stadium because the stadium had the, a big M with a, uh, the chief head logo on it, which for a while was like a tertiary logo for the Miami University. It was always official, but not very often used. Um, but it was this giant logo on the side of the wall and we did a good, we had a good conversation. We talked, but we didn't, we didn't feel like we were being, we were really getting to the root of the complexities of this issue. And so we'd been digging around for some theory and, uh, to help us analyze it. And, um, there are some good critical race theory scholars that look at sport as an institution, uh, Kevin Hilton being one of them. And we cite him a few times in here, but we, we didn't think that that was getting to where we wanted to go and we weren't sure what to do. And then Callie, I remember coming, she came to my office and she basically assigned me <laughs> the Brave Boy reading for 2005. Um, and she said, I think this is the one that's going to help us kind of make sense of this 
because of the theory of converging interests or interest convergence, mm -hmm. where um, it, we we didn't know how to critique and think about this relationship in a complex way because we knew that they were working with the Miamia tribe. And we also knew that there was some positive aspects of this relationship. And, and this theory kind of helps you deal with those complexities. And it lets you kind of think through um, how does the legacies of colonialism, um, because the tribal critical race theory, the difference between, or the, the main difference between tribal critical race theory and critical race theory is that TCRT, or tribal crit, mm -hmm. uh, looks at uh, colonization and the continuing dominance of European American power structures and points of view or epistemologies. Yeah, and that, um, that to me was an interesting kind of separation between the two. Because yeah. when you think about it, there is, I mean, a lot of people in and around the world have been colonized, but in the US, it's very specifically Native Americans who have been colonized. And it continues to be like they are on federal, like Indian land, they're living there, but there are still like this European American power structure surrounding them everywhere they go. So I, I found that because you you wrote in the paper that the CRT was this like black white binary. So yeah. I could understand where you're like, oh, it works, but you know, it doesn't necessarily work in working with Native American uh, populations, or in in this case, the the you know symbols for for that uh, group of people. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I couldn't have said it better myself than what you just said. Like those power structures are there and. And having read and remembering some of those stories I read as a kid, um, but from Sherman Alexie and um, when I was an eight, nine, 10 year old kid, I kind of remembered like those sorts of stories about kids my age or high school kids running up into different points of view when they left the reservation or when they left um, sovereign land of, of, of their tribes. And that kind of helped me just in a really simplistic way, remind myself of the the use of tribal crit theory and that focus on colonization. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. So, and, and I don't know about you, if you feel this way, and I don't want to impose this on you, so don't let me, but I often, or too often in my writing, uh, but also in my teaching, when we talk about race, like have those specific race, I mean, we're always talking about race in one way or the other, but in, those very specific units on race, I oftentimes fall into that black white binary mm -hmm. and forget about that vast um, center. So I was very grateful and happy for like, for this uh, theory um, because it did help us get to that one. Yeah. Uh, get to the meat of the issue. So what was the meat of the issue and this great segue right there into your methods? So this was a study, right? So what, what yep. was the study? What did you, what did you do? Well, we pretty much knew pretty quickly that we were going to be just looking at symbols um, and looking at um, visual aspects of campus. And so we just collected a whole bunch of pictures and we walked around, took pictures uh, and uh, and just basically made an accounting of all of the things that we'd seen. And then we knew that this was going to be more of a, the a piece about theory and thinking about theoretical aspects of it. So we kind of really honed our theoretical perspective. So that way we could figure out how to talk about these things that we are walking around watching camp, seeing on campus. And we took those pictures and this is the first time I've ever written and actually used pictures in a, in a, you know, in an academic article, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And we basically just described them. Uh, about the logos and took pictures of those and then described all the places we saw them. We had uh, a few students um, who were on teams that were able to get pictures of locker rooms to show us those uh, because we obviously couldn't get access to those. Mm -hmm. I knew about some of them as a former student and I was like, yeah, maybe you could ask your student if she can go into that locker room to see if that picture's still there that I remember hearing about from yeah. my friends when I was a student there. Um, and we talked about it in class and students would actually come tell us, oh yeah, we saw X over on 
on West Campus. Go over there to see if you can get a picture of it or go look at it so that way you'll know if it's there or not. Um, and we did. And then, and, and we took pictures of the old logos too. And then because we were so slow moving, we kind of got, we got, we kind of benefited from being so slow moving. We saw the campus kind of change over, over a, a year or two period where some of those old logos got taken down mm-hmm. and they got replaced by the new logo. And so a lot of our methods was just describing the physical space we were living in and working in and how it was changing over this one to one to two to three year period. So did you and, see any of the, cause you, you talk about the old logo uh, and mm-hmm. you put that old logo here in the, um, in the manuscript, but then there's another one from that has the, um, cause there's a Red Hawks logo and then there's the logo with the, you know, the stereotypical Indian chief, I, I guess I'll, I'll say that. Um, yeah. And so was, were there still a lot of those around when you started the project? There were. So like those are figure one and figure two. I think those mm-hmm. ones you're talking about. Yeah. And and uh, yeah, you had a much better term for it, the stereotypical Indian uh, chief. And it was called the chief's head logo when I was a student there, which I kind of like to use because it reminds us of like how dehumanizing of that mm-hmm. dehumanizing it is. Um there were there um the trope the the logo one those were in the athletic department's main office which was in the let hall which is where the basketball teams and the volleyball teams play um and those were there when i set foot back on campus in 2016 uh up until last time i talked to callie uh, about this project was about four or five months ago and we and she said that some of those things had been taken down okay. and that just had the logo on there just had the new red Hawk logo or no logo at all in the corners mm-hmm. we do not know about that practice gym one that was that's below millet hall and that's a student only space yeah and the student that took that picture for us is no longer um a student she yeah. graduated thankfully for her yeah. <laughs> uh but uh, i don't think callie's been able to get anybody else to check for her um, but she does talk about this in class every semester, and she said nobody has brought her up, hmm. which we can we might be able to infer that maybe that it finally got painted over. Yeah. Um, some of the other places we saw, like I think we say in the article, uh, I, I, well, I know we did, I just can't remember which page it's on, the right field at the power alleys in the baseball fields um, had the, the, the Chiefs head logo in the power alleys, and then one day, seemingly overnight, those got taken down and the Miami heritage logo got put up. Um, The thing that I noticed, which was interesting was students, more students seemed to be wearing the old logo uh, as I got there earlier. And interesting. Yeah. And I don't, I mean, I've got some theories, but none of them, I've not really thought about enough to kind of like make any public statements about them other than it's, it's to me echoes some of the, ways in which people are really strongly um, doubling down on the tomahawk chop um, mm-hmm. which there are some studies that indicate that that there is some pleasure to be found by white by white folks to do that um, to me I could read it that way but I don't I don't want to impose that sort of intent on my student on folks without being able to literally talk to them and ask them about why they're doing that right so let's let's talk about things like the tomahawk chop what what's the what's the history of using native american imagery in college sport what do we know about the issues because i know like if you go to a fighting illini game and it's getting close they start doing that like we can see that in college sport we saw this in the um, in the world series with the braves um you know but in at the college level like what what is the native american imagery used and how how like common is it yeah well i mean within the last 10 years miami hockey men's hockey team there used to be a famous scalp scalp them scalp them chant and song that the students would do mm-hmm. and the the university finally was finally re- finally put their foot down about nine eight nine years ago and made them stop and they would just um, remove people who were doing it or find they didn't, them or they didn't punish them as much as they just basically reminded them over and over again not to do it. And mm-hmm. finally the students, I guess, just got annoyed with it. So they stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and 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 it got such bad local public um, press that they were embarrassed enough by it about Mm. Uh, and I think they would kick a few students out, but nobody got fined and nobody got kicked out for the rest of the season. It was just like, all right, you got to go for the rest of the day. Right. Um, this is game. We'll see you next week. Just don't do it again. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in general, so like the broader history, it. So like the the Boston, the Atlanta Braves were in Boston first, and they changed the name to 1912 to the Braves, and I think it was like the Eaters or the Red Stockings that had multiple different kinds of names, you know, in that era where a bunch of these teams were trying out mascot names, and some of them didn't stick. Um, and the Cleveland Indians got their name, I think, in 1915, 1916, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And so like this time period in the early, the first two or three decades of the con- uh, of the country, a lot of schools and sports teams were using um, Native American imagery and my- masketry, and also a lot of com- um, commodified goods uh, like motorcycles, um, tobacco, um, butter, like Land Lakes Butter is the one I use. My dad actually worked for Land Lakes Butters. Butter, and then they they got they finally got rid of their um, Native American mascot just a few years ago. Uh, but these things come back from the early the late 1900s, and most of the argument is, or at least from what I've been able to gather, is that it was a way to demonstrate um, sort of American masculinity might because you depict these peoples, these Native American peoples, who were defeated by whites because along this time there was a lot of folks talking about native americans as being a dying race mm-hmm. um or a dead race uh which has remnants of like um, eugenics that were happening around that time as well yeah. and the fact that if you prop them up as braves or as warriors or as these um, noble um fighters it makes white american men and masculinity stronger because they were able to beat these people right mm. and and in battle and it and so they're being commodified and represented in that way but in ways that really reproduce and center whiteness and and capitalism and capitalist relationships and this also at the same time there's this long history of native american imagery being used to represent americanness in in um kind of difference of Britishness. Mm-hmm. So like you had people dressed up like Native Americans for the Boston Tea Party, right. um, for example, for those things like that. And then also sometimes Native Americans were used as a way to signal like uh, political um, parties or secret clubs would utilize Native American language or terminology as well. And so all that was kind of happening in the 1910s and 20s is sort of when it um in 30s is when it really coalesced especially around sports teams so there's a lot of schools that took up the mascots uh, like I, t- I think i said earlier giuliani um or giuliano <laughs> uh wrote about it and she was mostly focusing on the football like the faux indian bodies um who and the songs that would be playing during football games in the midwest primarily miami university was founded in 1809. We like to say that we were founded in 18 before Miami, Ohio was founded before Miami, before Florida was a state, uh, because we were founded in 1809. Um, and we are the real Miami because of that, mm-hmm. but it's, it's named after the Miami Indian tribe, uh, who were there and were big anti colonists, um, fighting in what is now Ohio. In the late 18th century, late 1800, late 18th century, um, and so there's been Native American sort of mascotry and imagery applied to Miami University since its very outset, uh, with the name being a uh, anglicized version of their name. That the, the um, there's a few like Little Miami and Little Maumee and the rivers around the area too. So it's always been associated. And then at that same, in that same time period, um, two of our biggest rivals, you had University of Cincinnati calling themselves the Bearcats and Ohio University calling themselves the Bobcats. And so this myth on campus that the name Red Hawks came about like organically 
Uh, there's also some primary evidence that we cite in the piece um, through Taglia, Taglia and Harris, who were, um, Ophelia Harris is a, is a professor at Miami and a great sociologist of race mm -hmm. uh, and sports um, that's been there for since the 90s. Uh, when I was when I was an undergrad, I don't know if you'd like me to say it that way, um, <laughs> but uh, they wrote this really great piece that found that there's actually PR and marketing that they came up with a name. I they used the, the old mascot name, the old racist slur, as a way to differentiate themselves from the Bobcats and the Bearcats. Mm -hmm. And also, you have like that stereotype and that of you know Native Americans are going to be hunting red Bobcats uh, and Bearcats, so it helps with that sort of terminology as well. Yeah. Um, so like, that's when it came out with Miami, but in the years before that, like, if you look back at like primary sources from the night, from the late 1800s, when Miami came back after the civil war, cause it kind of shut down because of just not many students were there. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, there was a lot of like native American imagery that came up in like student publications, like their lit, their lit, um, review, their campus newspapers, their bands. So like there was always kind of this unofficial um, relationship to the color red and to Native American imagery. Yeah, it's interesting. Up until this moment, I, I, I always knew that there was a University of Miami and Miami University, but I was like, oh, why are those people in Ohio calling it Miami University? And I just cut, always just kind of yeah. let it go. But that <laughs> well, now that makes a lot of sense. Well, there is a story that Philip Shriver, the same guy that we wrote, that is one of the few guys that's written history on Miami University, and the student center is called the Shriver Center. He was a beloved um, history professor, but also uh, pres college president uh, in the mid to late 20th century. And he even taught as an emeritus up until like 2008, 2009, one of the most popular classes on campus. Hmm. Um, but he he says that the names of the towns in Ohio or in Florida were named uh, Ohio like because a lot of the people that worked down there to build the railroad, the early railroads in Florida were from Ohio. So you've got Daytona Beach instead of like, which is Dayton, you got Alima, Florida and Alima, Ohio. Um, and it, the terminus is Miami. And his argument is that it's all just people copying Ohio. <laughs> I don't know if he's right, but it's it's something that we very much like to tell ourselves. It's, it's a good story to tell. <laughs> it is. <laughs> uh, so we've we've kind of hovered around this about the heritage logo, uh, and clearly, like Miami made a, a change. So they added this uh, my. Miami heritage logo. Can you talk about the history and the logo and like what does it mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, and this was one of the sections that and this would have been great if we could have gotten um, Kalyan. Uh, I know that she's excited about what we're doing because um, this was one of the things that she was really fascinated with and did a lot of um, really interesting work. The two, so like the logo, if, if folks, if listeners look at it, figure three is like is the main one. And it's uh, the one that also has the, and I'm going to not do a great job with his name, but has the word Nita Wantaniki, uh, which is a Miami word that's, a, that's loosely translated or retranslated or Miami University translated into learning from each other. Mm -hmm. And it is two diamonds um, facing each other. One of them is black and one of them is red. And in the middle is a white square with a red dot in it. And it is a reference, and it's built off of this really cool artwork from the Yamiya tribe called Ribbon Work, where they um, have been doing it for as, as far as I can, as far as we know, have been doing it for as long as they've um, been they've been saving this stuff. It's been a long tradition, and it's this beautiful sort of ribbon work that looks a lot like that logo, where folks will sort of intertwine, um, layer. Um, pieces of ribbon to create geometric designs in clothing, blankets, shoes. There's some really cool like moccasins that use it, um, tapestries for the wall, um, all sorts of great. And so it's like this, it's a, it's a, it's a big part of Miami art, Miami art culture mm -hmm. uh, and just lived experiences and life. And so it's an important component. And now what the, the red sign, let me make sure I get this right. Uh, the the black logo is supposed to represent the depths of time, earned respect, 
and accumulated cultural wisdom and recognize the tribe's deep ties to their historical time uh, homelands. So that's the one on the left, and it's kind of a long lane of the diamond. And then the one on the right is the red one, and it's responsibility, sacrifice, and the commitment to gain and share knowledge, uh, which is, you know, is like one of the hallmarks of what a university is supposed to be about. Yeah. And then the middle one is is a shared, is this white square supposed to represent this shared vision, clarity vision, and this respect for, e- for each other. Um, so sometimes, sometimes the black part is, is talked about as being representative of the tribe and the red part of the university and it's coming together and then the mm-hmm. red dot in the middle of that white um, square is a campfire uh, for them to hover around together in warmth and knowledge mm-hmm. uh, because you know like the symbol of light in a dark in a dark land is like enlightenment right. um, so that's that, that's what that's supposed to represent and it's it's a, I, I think it's a really beautiful design to be honest and very like elegant uh, without being too overstated right absolutely um, and it was you and old i think julie olds am i getting that name yeah julie olds i'm sorry i want to make sure i got her name right she was one of the fo- one of the folks who helped kind of popularize it from the miami tribe she's a cultural resources office officer um and everything we found it looks like the university really kind of worked with miami tribe uh to to put it together mm-hmm. the other logo though is the turtle and the secondary logo which as um, we wrote in there, it, it, it incorporates that logo, the the rimwork logo into the the shell of the turtle. Right. And this the, the turtle was a little more popular because there's a very popular um, campus statue uh, where in one of the main quads that traditionally you walk by and there's like six turtles around this really cool um, sundial. You know, this circular sundial or global sundial, I should say. And the, the campus lore is that you rub the turtles' heads for luck uh, before your exam. Mm-hmm. And you know, and there is some sort of notion of like some Native American cultures call like North America Turtle Island um, and, as a kind of a reminder of different notions of, of um, ownership, but also different ideas of religious um, stories of creation. Uh, because we couldn't really find a other than the Miami University um, and the, the relationship to the turtle, we couldn't f- we couldn't find anything specific that spoke to the turtles and Miamia. Right. So we think it's a it's a very pur- purposeful joining of a Miami University tradition with a right. Miamia tradition. Huh. So I guess after reading the article, I I can clearly understand that the idea of the university and developing the Miamia Heritage logo was to acknowledge the kind of contested past, celebrate the connections with the Miamia people. And you, you said that there were people working with the university in designing this. Um, and the symbolism of learning from each other and the other things that you just brought up do sound like what you should be doing at universities. But yeah. you also bring up a lot of important questions to be asked about who benefits from these symbolic changes. So can you walk us through some of the questions and tell us about the implications that these uh, changes can maybe bring up? Yeah. Um, yeah, like that's like you're exactly right. The, the marketing for this was was fantastic um, and it made a lot of us old alumni feel kind of fuzzy and warm like finally miami's doing something right by the tribe that they've displaced um and basically stole land from mm-hmm. uh in the 1800s um and never really paid them back and so it did feel like it was a great great first step and then when you kind of scratch the surface a little bit um you realize that like this November 2019 was the Tribe University Week, the Celebrating Miami Tribe University Week. And a lot of the sports teams, quote unquote, paid tribute um, to the relationship by using the Miami, the Miami Tribe Heritage logo on their jerseys, putting them on their um, football helmets. The football helmet even made, uh, there's a small segment on ESPN about the football helmet uh, and across social media platforms for a bunch of other sports networks. Um, scratch the surface a little bit and you start to realize wait a second 
who does actually benefit from this? Um, we can definitely see how the university, or at least a few of the ways the university is benefiting. Right. And Chief Langford is saying that the, excuse me, that the tribe is benefiting from being associated to this university. But what else is out there? Like what, what, what beyond this PR move is happening? Mm-hmm. And so we were thinking about this term racial capitalism, which we use Nancy Leong's version of it, that idea of um, finance, like of benefiting financially from racialized other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nancy Long has written about it. Um, in, from a, she's also a legal scholar, but she's written about it in, on college campuses about how some universities will literally Photoshop a person of color into imagery on a crowd to make the campus look more racially diverse. Mm. Um, And so Miami University is a incredibly white university. Um, In in terms of racial demographics, it is over 80% white, and it has been at least that much for a long time. And so it has a very white middle class alumni base. And so we initially were kind of thinking, well, this just seems like it is selling diversity back to a white audience for white people to feel comfortable about how white their university is. Hmm. And so we, that was our, that was one of our initial questions. Like, is that true? And we, then we just kind of sketch it out. Um, They're both benefiting from this development and the logo, um, the collection of products, some of the selling of the products, like Cali cannot get over the fact that there is a, Miami Heritage logo cornhole set <laughs> that you can buy, uh, and we could we tried to find a good picture of it that we but we could not find one that we weren't sure that we were breaking uh, copyright mm-hmm. in sharing at the university or at the, but they that that was the one that kind of pushed her over the edge about just I can't believe how ridiculous this is, um, but we were just wondering about who benefits from this and how do they benefit and so what what does it mean for a incredibly white university that doesn't that that at the time when we were there at school was having actively racist incidents on campus where administration was almost each semester having to send out apology to black students about um, racism on campus Hmm. what does that indicate and how does this pr this pr move um work racially and so we got into some deeper questions but yeah the like the the who benefits thing the interest convergence because that that main theme of tribal tribal crit theory was how can native americans and native american groups partner with universities and at what point do those interests stop converging and so the pr firm was deaf or the pr move was definitely about uh the tribe saying we're really happy to be a part of this university and be associated with the university and the university saying we're very happy to reconcile uh and continue to improve relationships between the tribe and the university which had been strained for a little bit in the 90s and um in the early 2000s but they were very happy to use this sort of joint project to trumpet the convergence interest but then once again there's only a token number of of native american students especially the miami tribe at miami there are very few black students and other students of color at the university as well and it is a predominantly white power structure so even though they say some of the money is going towards native american groups what does that mean right um most of the money is still going to this white um, administration and white university, and there is no like wholesale kind of reparations being paid back to the people. Um, so that like those are those questions that were evolved out of that. Yeah, and I and I think it's a complicated topic, right? Because if you think yeah. about this, it's not it's not like all these other universities are going to tribes to reconcile and make new logos and embrace it. So it's it's a positive thing that Miami University is doing this, but then at the same time, like to what extent, like, 
what's what's the long term process of this and um there's you know there's other universities out there that are doing much worse things and yes. that you know we could go into a a university game and kind of you know like i always think of like a, a foreigner somebody from like i don't know norway comes in and just like goes to one of these games that they do the tomahawk chop and they're like why do you do that? And they're like, oh, we yeah. do this because of it's it's a tradition. And they're like, well, is it like, are there like Native American people who like are opposed to this? And they're like, oh, I never thought about that, you know. And exactly, but, but it still keeps on happening. And I wonder; those things are so like ingrained into that sports culture that I think it would be very hard to take them out yet. We see these like we see in soccer like these chants that are against uh, LGBTQ populations that you know have been going on in Latin American countries for years and years and years and years, and then this year they're like, okay, you're playing with no audience. Nobody's coming yeah. to your game until you stop doing that, and you're going to be fined again if your fans do that. And they just like play in front of no audiences because they're fans are racist or they're or a certain group of their fans are racist or misogynistic or whatever and they put those penalties in and i wonder how long it will take for a big 10 university to close their their game to an audience yeah well it's that's a really good i mean that's where like that 2000 i think it's 2005 that ncaa Native American mascot um, policy was put in place mm-hmm. where NCAA schools couldn't have, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but they couldn't have postseason tournaments if they had a Native American mascot and also didn't have like a special relationship um, with a, a, a an affiliated tribe. Right. So like that's when um, some of the smaller schools start to switch their names. Yeah. Um, and even like getting rid of like the warrior name or the college of women mary which was the tri uh which was from the indians and now it's the tribe huh. um and a lot of it was because of that that was their punishment was you can't have that postseason gate yeah. but i think stephanie Epstein in sports illustrated was was one of the first things that i've ever until you just said that was one of the first like public journalists to say well, in some of those countries, they're not letting them play in front of a crowd at all as punishment because it hurts their bottom dollar. Yeah. Um, and it hurts their home field advantage if they want to win. Yeah. Um, playing in front of nobody. Why doesn't the Major League Baseball do that with the um, Tomac Chop? Yeah. Or, or fast really forward to 2021 when the Washington football team finally was like, okay, there's a lot of other issues happening in this city with our team we will change our name. Yeah, exactly. And that was because of years of activist work. And then they finally got to FedEx and said, and FedEx finally realized they didn't want to be associated with that brand anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm sure that it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that was a big part of it. And you you live in that area, so you know that story too. Yeah, yeah. Um, Well, and um, there's a really good Native American sports management scholar, Natalie Welch, um, who teaches at, I think it's Linville University a small college up in Oregon and she is, um, Eastern, um, a band of Cherokee Indian, which is one of the, which is the tribal nation that has a relationship with the Atlanta Braves. She's been talking a lot about this on social media and she's been on, um, some podcasts and radio interviews where she's been talking about those complications and the sort of, how do we punish the bad behavior and she the last week she shared a picture of uh, or an image no, a video like a 15 second clip of this small college basketball game in southern kansas versus a small school in northern oklahoma and i think it was the school in can no the school the, it was happening at kansas in kansas and the oklahoma school had a native american player on their basketball team mm-hmm. and they were chanting scalp him scalp him scalp him oh. the kid every time he touched the ball and there was punishment, but it didn't happen until after the game. Yeah. And so, like, like it kind of speaks to the, like you said, it's so ingrained in sport culture. And I know a lot of my students 
when we talk about these things, they, they, they kind of shrug it off as banter or athletes just, it's like talk, trash talk is just part of mm-hmm. the game mm-hmm. and getting them to understand that this is more than just trash talk. And maybe even trash talk shouldn't be part of the game. Right. Um, I mean, I don't know if I agree with that, but I think we should at least think through it yeah. if it's, if, if we're going to, um, especially if you can't trash talk without being racist or sexist right. or homophobic. Uh, but like it, it does go that extra step, but we, we don't seem to be willing to stop, stop the games and calling people out during the fact yeah. right before you call today, there's, I saw a video of these people chanting horribly misogynistic thing at this young woman who's on a high school hockey team in, in Pennsylvania. Um, like basically they, they were chanting, uh, rape her, rape her, rape her. Oh, that's crazy. At this young woman who was a goalie on this, and she was the only woman on the team because they didn't have women's hockey right. or girls' hockey at the high school. And the only thing I could think of is what, where are her, um, if nobody else, where are her teammates standing up for her or her coach yeah. uh, to stop the game and just get rid of those people until the game's over? And yeah, I, mean, I I remember in uh, in high school they had this like. Uh, anti-gay kind of chant that they would do at, at the free throw line for basketball games yeah. and it was going on for a little while and the principal literally like walked out on the on the court and called out the kids who were doing it and like it was a, like a normal basketball game and this is like in the in the 90s and just remember like oh that's a chant like but now thinking back of what not necessarily even courage but the but the right vision of saying, okay, this is like taking it over the line. Like this is, this is when I need to take a stand and kick out those people who are doing it. And, and this is a school sanctioned admit, you know, yep. you, you can't do that. And, and we can welcome those people back once they've kind of learned their lesson and have realized what they were doing is wrong. Um, Cause I, I think we're, I don't think they're irredeemable. I don't think anybody would think oh, they, absolutely. You know, yeah. they're irredeemable. But, uh, um, but yeah, you're, that's such a, and that's such a great example. And it's, it's such a simple thing to do. Or, well, it's a difficult thing to do, but it's a simple act of walking out there and just saying, guys, stop doing this. Yeah. Or people stop, students stop doing this. Absolutely. So I, I have one last question for you, kind of <laughs> wrapping this up. Can yes. you tell, <laughs> tell me a little bit about the suggested changes you bring that could help disrupt the power relations and attend to the interests of the Miami tribe? Like what, what could be done? Yeah. So like, kind of like what we just talked about, we saw in, in, in the grand scheme of things, we saw that this Miami, the Miami heritage logo does reproduce, um, uh, white supremacy and power and, uh, and a predominantly white institution and like white capitalism. But we also saw it as an important and could possibly a great first step towards disrupting these power structures, mm-hmm. right, and benefiting. Um, and so, one of the things that both Kelly and I had talked about is like we we respect scholars, and we're often the same scholars that kind of don't that just do a, do an analysis and then we're done. But we at this point we wanted to think see if we could think about some actual steps forward and things like actionable items. Um, and so we wrote a few of these out and we actually got help from one of the reviewers. They, they wrote us a third advice, piece of advice or, or clarified one of ours. Thanks reviewer too. Uh, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They don't usually get enough. Thanks. Uh, um, so like there's a really powerful, like part of the Miami university brand. Um, and they really do like to brand themselves, um, is this gen- a liberal arts education at a, a at a public university. Mm-hmm. And so there's this thing called the Miami plan, which is a big component for all students. Even if you major in one of the quote unquote professional schools, you still have to take a wide variety of classes. And which is one of the reasons why I liked the school when I was looking at this as a, as a high school kid. Um, but we thought that there should be, um, they should, they should create and um, require uh, a Miami history a culture class or language class mm-hmm. as part of this plan. So like every student that goes to Miami should at least take one Miami, um, history slash culture or language class. Uh, there should be an indigenous studies department there uh, where students could major or minor indigenous studies, uh, because there's the, the great Miami center, 
um, where there's folks doing incredible work with with refer with um, uh, kind of saving. I think they use the name saving or um, uh, finding and reanimating. Uh, and these are all and these are Miami tribe our Miami tribe scholars that are doing this work on campus. We thought we should take advantage of it and maybe um, hire some folks to work there and teach to all Miami students. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing that we thought about was um, making language and culture a permanent part of campus. So building on that Miami center and providing public space reserved for statues and memorials of Miami history and art by members of the tribe, whether it be like a, a wing at the already that there's a there's a small art um, center on campus um, or creating a whole other museum just for Miami art and center. There is a precedent on campus. I don't know if you um, know. Let me make sure I get his name right. Um, McGuffey, William McGuffey, the, the McGuffey readers, mm -hmm. which for a long time were the, the way that a lot of farm kids um, learned uh, their um, history. Hmm. Um, William Holmes McGuffey wrote the, or learned uh, textbook, textbooks. My grandpa um, learned from a William Holmes McGuffey reader, and he was a English, I mean, an education professor in an English or education school at Miami is named after him. And there's a small little museum on his behalf um, on campus. Um, so, so there is a history, there is a precedent for that on campus to give space over to a prominent aspect right. um, of Miami. Um, we thought that like another thing they could do is to include, and this is where the, one of the reviewers helped us with, is include Miami language on signs. Mm -hmm. So, and we were originally just thinking, you know, Canada, you have to get French and American in a lot of the places, but they pointed out to a specific school to Laurentian uh, has a triculture mandate where there's English, French, and their indigenous language from that, or the indigenous language from the people that were living in their um, community. Uh, Anishinaabewan, and that was probably not sounded correctly or pronounced correctly. But I mean, there's a it. there's a precedent to this too internationally of what New Zealand has done to oh yeah privilege Maori yes. language and Maori culture and how you know great point these these languages and traditions are embedded in the national curriculum for physical education or education in general. You have these things that are part of the culture, not just like, and again, like I know that there's scholars that say that it's not, has not gotten far enough and there's a lot of inequities there still, but there's a huge step there of how to incorporate a native indigenous population who was there before European settlers came over and colonized the country now that they are kind of working back, um, back to that and using that language, um, you know, all exactly. Over the place. That would have also been a good thing for us to have included that that president as well. Um, and, and and I could just imagine for me personally, as someone who spent so much time on the campus and have a lot of fond memories, I can imagine the different signages having the English name and mm -hmm. then the uh, Miami name underneath it yeah. or vice versa. have the Miami name on top and, and a Miami yeah. name on top and then each one yeah. there. And use um, all that money that they're going to make off these new logos. Exactly. Uh, and then we, we said that they could even invent, they could even admit even more students from the Miami tribe. Hmm. Yeah. Um, they do, it's generally a, a cohort of from what, and this is where my numbers are a little bit um, old and dated, but from what I remember reading is between 10 and 15 every year, there's, a, there's usually about 10 or 15 Miami tribe, official members of the Miami tribe there come to Miami and they have a, they have a, um, they generally get a pretty good scholarship as long as they're the merit-based um, specific uh, and all that. But we, we want, we think they should open up to even more students and maybe even if they're, if the merit based issues are too strict, maybe lower them even more mm -hmm. uh, to allow as many students to come as possible. Yeah. Um, make Miami leaders a permanent part of the university governance going forward. Make sure there's at least one, two, three, members of tribal, like elected members of tribal government, so they can select them however they want to, that are a part of the board of governors, the board of mm. um, uh, uh, regents type organization there. Um, fifth, pay back, um, pay, pay them back to the tribe. Uh, Cause uh, there's two, there's the Miami tribe in, in Indiana, uh, officially, officially federal sectioned ones. And then there's also the Miami tribe in Oklahoma. 
there are some really good outreach for those groups. Um, I know a lot of scholars work with them, like scholars, scholars and educators from campus. Uh, but give them money. Yeah. And we were thinking of the George Washington, Georgetown University's plan recently to pay repara- reparations to the descendants of people who had um, built that university, enslaved by the university. Yeah. 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 And, and and we kind of framed it like you like you and I've been talking about. Like this is a great first step. Um, nobody's perfect. Um, especially with a history of genocide and colonization that is America, mm-hmm. of course, um, it's going to be really difficult to pay that back because of that history. Right. But this is a really good first step, and we really hope the university that we both really care about and yeah. want to do well and uh, to keep moving in the right direction. So I, I said I had one last question, but now I have another question. Have you sent this paper? Like, do you just like print out a bunch of copies and slip it underneath the, the door of the, like the president and the provost and different people? Like, do you think that they've read this paper or have you presented I've on sent, it? I sent this to, because I'm no longer there. I moved to Rhode Island in 20, when did I come here? 2019. And Callie and I were finishing up or like we're, finishing up the paper 2019 2020 school year um i've sent the picture to a lot of or the article to a lot of my friends who are alums mm-hmm. um, and a lot of students of mine have sent it their way too and i've shared it and um on social media but i have not gone as far as what i what i'd like to do is kind of i kind of would like to print them out I know that Callie um, has presented on it in on campus uh, in her own way. Like she does it, she teaches about it in, in her classes, and she has um, has taught has given a few formal presentations on campus, is what I should say. But I don't know if anything anybody above like the department chair of the department we used to work at has actually been has actually read it. I know that we've made it available but we maybe yeah. we should just print it out yeah. and that's and doors. that's a that's a power structure piece on like the 17th level of you have a an author at that university who wrote this article you you yes. left you're a rhode island you're like hey yes. you can't you can't do anything uh but you know like an athletic director or an associate ad like to read this would be I don't know how they take it, but I think I think yeah. it'd be really interesting for them to read it. And and I bet you that most athletic directors don't read academic papers about oh. the stuff. You know, like they're so busy doing other things. So yep. it would be interesting. You could you could have them all read it, interview all of them, write a second paper. Yes. Well, we we are wondering what to do next. That's a good. I'll put that down as the next option. We. Uh, Chief Larkin and President Crawford did come out with a story. I think it was in either higher ed um, or, you know, one of those um, like industry papers that like that all of us academics get emails about. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't the Chronicle, but it was one of the other ones. And Callie did send it to me, and she and I, I we debated whether we should just post the paper on the comment section, um, but um, I know I didn't, and I think. That was the week that she submitted her tenure portfolio. <laughs> so she was a little busy doing other stuff. Yeah, so just but send yeah, it. Send it like in a year. <laughs> That's what I told her. She's like, "Yeah, maybe I will." And I know that as part of your tenure portfolio, you're gonna the president's gonna speak to you one way or the other. So yeah. hopefully she'll get in there. But you're right. Like that that power structure and is is there, and she has jokingly been told by people, and I hope it's jokingly because it'd be a shame if they for them to miss her or for them to lose her um, because of the great work she does. But she's been jokingly, people said, you should have done this after tenure. And I don't know about you, but I think this is a pretty fair paper. No, absolutely it is, yeah. Actually. um, And I learned a ton from this paper and it made me, and it made me think a lot. And I think that that, and I'll I'll put the full uh, link to the paper in the, in the notes section so people can read it and, click on the paper and see the see the logos that we've been talking about and both staring at but in an audio yeah. podcast um, doesn't really doesn't really come out the same so no well i mean and it was i, I really i mean, i really appreciate you reaching out to talk about this and also just the kind words you said about it and this good conversation cuz 
I don't know if it came across, but this was really like a labor of of love um, for me because mm-hmm. um, I really do all things. I've really enjoyed my time in Miami, and I really want them to live up to some of their standards that they hold for other people and for themselves in many other ways. I want them to continue doing that work yeah. uh, and get better on this side too because. Um, they're on the right track, I think, and I hope. Um, and it looks and like re- they're I mean, moving forward. Great talking to you about this. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, appreciate your time. Um, I also want to thank Alba Rodriguez for her help and uh, helping produce the podcast. And uh, that's all we got this week. Thanks. If you're still listening, you're probably really into health and physical education. So I'm going to use this opportunity to pitch our master's program to you if you don't have your master's degree yet. Um, Our 100% online master's degree program we offer at George Mason is affordable. You can do it while teaching, and it's high quality. Um, Mason was listed as one of the top 50 universities under 50 years old in the world. Our education department was ranked in the top 10 nationally for the online master's degree program in curriculum and instruction. The master's degree uh, revolves around your teaching. So you'll use assignments from the classes to immediately apply research and best practices to your classes. You'll be part of a tight-knit cohort of health and physical education professionals who are passionate about teaching. You're also going to get an opportunity to interact with students in other content areas So if you're interested, you can email me, look me up on Twitter, or you can go on the hpewebsite.com under study with us and watch a video that I've made.